Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. And today I'm going to be talking to Opal co-founder, clinical director, and head of the exercise and sport program, Kara Bozzi. Hi, Kara. Hi. Today we're going to be talking about some of the gray areas in our relationship to movement. So we'll be talking first about some of the common cultural norms around movement, what the expectations often seem to be, particularly in American culture, and uh, diving into some of the spaces where there might be some more room for personal interpretation. One of the things I want to ask you right off the bat is what you mean by exercise versus movement. So in our programming I use the words exercise, sport, and movement, usually the three of those words together. And the reason I do that is because we have a lot of associations with particular words, and I don't want that to trip people up. To get the broadest amount of thought around that relationship, I try to use those words intentionally so that people don't limit their thinking around a particular word, because a lot of people have associations with the word exercise. And I think movement, there's a more oftentimes a more broad, broad ideas about what movement is in one's life. And then sport has its own set of associations. And so that's kind of the thought behind using all three of those words together is to gather as much kind of information from people and to not be limiting. I think the word movement speaks so much to probably where we're headed in some ways in this conversation. But I'd love to talk about the word exercise first because, and and maybe we could throw a sport in there too, because that seems to be indicative of most of the cultural norms around what it means to move our bodies. Yes. Uh, It's exercise focused. It's workout focused. Right. uh, More than anything else. Right. Yeah. I think the word exercise often, at least in American culture, refers to us having the act of doing something intentionally to exercise. And there's probably a lot of reasons why people exercise, but I think the dominant kind of cultural reasons are that it's good for you. Like I said, so for from a physical health perspective, we hear recommendations from the government even about how much exercise we should have per week, per day. And we also hear that exercise is really good for mental health, for depression. Those could be reasons that people are exercising. Often another major reason people are exercising is body shaping and Mm -hmm. weight management. And whether that's to lose weight or to shape in a particular way, that's often a huge motivator for people to exercise and especially in that intentional exercise category. Um, And I would say a dominant viewpoint is that exercise actually equates to weight loss, which I believe is a myth. Why is that a myth? Well, (laughs) it is just simply not true of what I've seen over the decade plus that I've been doing this work. And I think it's a really actually damaging belief that people do treat as fact because they believe that that is actually going to happen for sure. So when it doesn't happen, that can cause a lot of issues of whether they self-blame or get into even maybe destructive habits in order to get the weight loss to happen. But from a qualitative standpoint, 
what I've seen is that people's body can either stay the same in terms of their weight or it can actually go up in weight or reduce in weight. It does all sorts of things and when it when it relates to exercise and yet that's really confusing for people because of that again that dominant belief that's out there that exercise actually makes somebody lose weight. As a personal example, when I actually get into more intense training for a race, for uh, running, knowing my body, my body actually does gain a little bit of weight during a training period like that. And so, and I've heard of athletes where that's that's the case, but if if everyone's going with the assumption that it does this one thing, that can be really problematic. The other thing that might motivate people to exercise is really kind of like a lifelong, almost routine or pattern coming from sport of being used to participating in a sport and kind of continuing that on past youth sport or high school sport or collegiate sport, just continuing to participate in athletics. I think people also exercise for social reasons. And then again, there's also the flip side of these might be reasons people then don't exercise. <laughs> and what would the reasons be with the, the not exercising? I mean, like that the pressure of those things would sure. be so so mm-hmm. strong. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like in that even that athlete example, somebody could have come from a, a history of sport. And then if they don't feel like they can keep up in kind of their performance side, they might then avoid because that's too painful to not be able to do something well anymore. And so they might avoid doing something, an activity that they actually have pleasure in or something that they enjoy because they can't perform well. And there might be shame about that. So one of the things I'm curious about is what you mean by these gray areas within movement. So I was excited to talk on the podcast today again more about our own mindset and relationship to movement because both with our clients and even we've discovered too with our staff is it's not a place that people have had much reflection on about why they're doing what they're doing and the mindset. And so if you've heard our podcast before, we talk about the connection between the eating disorder and more the qualitative relationship with exercise. So that is more of the mindset. And I think when it comes to the mindset, there is a lot of areas that are a little hard to tease apart. They're very nuanced around why we do what we do and whether something's kind of healthy or whether it's maybe not so sure or even a red flag, something that that would be considered unhealthy. And so I think that there is value to kind of assess that and look at those things. And I mean, I guess in the, the bigger picture, the hope would be that that we can do that type of work and that can help us enter into a healthier, more free, more pleasurable, more expansive relationship with exercise and movement, even if that means like being more okay with having preferences for not doing as much movement. So that's the hope. And the cool thing is, is that I've seen people do this work in treatment and make incredible changes in their relationship to their body in this way. I'm seeing change in even a short period of time with being able to have a place to understand and unpack this stuff to get to know themselves more and be willing to experiment and have some discomfort to lead to a better relationship with it. And what does that process of transformation look like? So I think some of it starts with this conversation of reflection and unpacking and understanding. 
And then with that unpacking, then it does involve exposure work. It does involve experimentation. We call it kind of being a social scientist of yourself. So it's it's, go, it's shifting away from what we're hearing externally culturally, like exercise is great for your health. And, you know, it's less dependent on all these external messages and really doing more of that work of knowing your own self and knowing your own body, establishing more trust again with your body because similar to food, relationship to exercise often as a little baby and toddler starts with Mm -hmm. a trusting relationship. And then oftentimes some of those things get broken or confusing along the way for a variety of reasons, but one just generally from the culture. And so to go back to understanding yourself, to build that trust again through experimentation, I think people can really find that and, and own it. On the outside, it might not fit the cultural ideals. And yet when people get to that place, there's enough just positive reinforcement from feeling solid that it's easier to withstand the judgments that people might be having by just like kind of looking and observing at what somebody's doing in their life. Because there's so much more beyond what's happening externally. There's a whole internal thing going on. And if those, if you're internally at war, but doing externally what's good, like, again, that's not a very free relationship. It's not that pleasurable. I did that for years. It's not, it's not fun. (laughs) No, no. Very restricting. It's pretty. Ugh. Yeah. So, yeah. we can talk more about these these parts, these gray areas. Yeah. So what so what are some of the gray areas where if we're talking about someone being really disordered, and that's I guess the assumption that we're making here that a lot of people have a disordered relationship with movement mm-hmm. or a, a relationship with movement that is inspired and influenced mostly through cultural expectations and the sense of what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that means that they're doing it perfectly or maybe they're really avoiding it, there might be a lot of influence there. What are the gray areas here that would yeah. be somewhere between healthy and disordered? So interestingly, the, these gray areas are questions that I would say come up often and are rethinking exercise and sport group. And so I've had the privilege of having seven years of this weekly group (laughs) where I can see the same questions recycled over and over of these gray areas, these questions that somebody wants a black and white answer to. And the reality is there's not a black and white answer. There's not a right or wrong. They're nuanced. But here are some of the questions that I think people struggle with. One being, should you always like what you're doing? Is there a place for movement that's not pleasurable? Like this whole idea of pleasure as it relates to movement. Which is something you emphasize a lot mm-hmm. with joyful movement. Yep. And so unpacking that, which we can, we can do some of that. Another question is how much pushing or training is too much? That often comes up. And then on the opposite side, what does it mean to be doing less movement? And how do you unpack preference and appetite of movement versus a being avoidant. And then there's oftentimes the question of what to do with the government prescriptive movement. Is that bad? Is it bad to follow prescription? So what about fitness trackers and using numbers? We also get the question a lot, is it ever okay to body shape? And then there's oftentimes questions around emotions. Is it wrong to exercise to manage emotion? So again, the questions often come with a desire for a black and white answer for right or wrong. And I would say, and this is going to be probably irritating for listeners too, but the answer is that it depends. <laughs> it always depends. It all It's so nuanced that you can't just say, 
yes, it's all it's always wrong to exercise to manage emotion or no, it's it's not wrong. Okay, so I want to hear more about each of these. What do you think? Should you always be enjoying what you're doing movement-wise? Yeah, again, okay, we're going to go into why this depends. So pleasure and joy, I believe, has to be somewhere as part of the equation in terms of doing what you're doing or at least asking yourself the question, do I like any of this or why am I doing this? But when it comes to the nuance side is that there might be things that we're doing for a purpose to gain access to something to have pleasure. So great example would be physical therapy. Yes. Great one that I hate. <laughs> I do not like doing physical therapy. I don't think a lot of people love doing physical therapy. You know, the we, the daily movements that you're doing to um, either gain strength or recover from an injury. And I recently learned that I have to do pretty regular physical therapy exercises in my legs because of, of my aging and my, my mechanics in my left leg um, is requiring that I do this to kind of keep up so that I don't have symptoms in my, in my left leg. So and you, have you had the symptoms that got you? I finally there? got yeah, I finally got the symptoms which helped me do physical therapy and help me understand again the more the mechanics of my body and where I'm at and what I need to do now. How do I need to adjust and accommodate? So do I like doing physical therapy? No, but I am motivated to do it because I really enjoy some of the things that I do for movement and it's a big part of my life and my appetite is high for it. Can I pause you and yes. ask you what that means that your appetite is high? I'm a mover. I would say preference-wise for free time that I have, I'm very drawn to doing sports. You like that idea. Uh-huh. It's like what you want. I like to do, yep, that's that's one of my hobbies. It's one of the things I enjoy in my free time. My my motivation is high to have that in my life. And so I do the movement of physical therapy to be able to have access to that, even though I don't like it. Also, you know, in sports is a good example, too, is there's going to be components that you have pleasure in with sport. And then there might be parts of it that you that aren't so pleasurable in the training or in kind of the little things that you're doing, like strength training or stretching or parts of it that might not be that pleasurable. But you're doing, again, for the sake of participating within this sport that you there, there hopefully would be some pleasure in. If there isn't pleasure kind of connected to any of the things that you're doing, that would just be a good pause to consider. Like, okay, why am I doing this? What is the gain? And there might be another gain. And that would just be worth exploring. Is that worth it? I find that if there isn't some level of enjoyment or pleasure, I haven't seen very many people stick with something sustainably. Yeah. Yep. That seems about right to me. Actually, to be honest, I got distracted because I was thinking about this time in my life that I had sort of shoved aside when I was on a cross-country team. Yeah. And I was on the cross-country team in ninth grade at a school that I actually stayed at for six weeks. But mm -hmm. I started preseason, cross-country, didn't know anyone, thought it would be like a good idea, meet some people. All of the friends I had were doing field hockey, and I had no interest. And I figured like, okay, like mm -hmm. running, that's always good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dad had run. I think I had liked it some when I was younger. And I hated it. I yeah. hated it so much. I thought it was painful. I thought it was boring. I really didn't like running with other people. Mm -hmm. I'd run some by myself before and enjoyed that. I really didn't like doing it. 
in a team, mm-hmm. the competitive nature of it, I hated. Yes. And I started getting shin splints <laughs> and loved that. Yeah. So I would go <laughs> to practice and sit in I the could bleachers. I could be with a team, yeah. but then not do it. <laughs> just sit there, ice my shins. Oh, just maybe another day of rest. Yeah. Oh, j- maybe just another day of rest. And then I think like about a year later, after I had dropped out of that school and never went back to cross country, I changed my relationship to running and really started enjoying it a little bit more on my on my own. On your own. Yeah. Right. Again, another nuance. Yeah. Like the experience of running on your own versus running in a team or having competition as part of it. Yeah. You might like one version of the running and the other part you don't prefer. It's interesting to think of the pleasure part given the, again, cultural beliefs of what gets revered because something like running, especially in the Pacific Northwest, is elevated mm-hmm. um, as something good and respectable. And so I, I hear a lot of people saying, I want to like running. I want to yes. be good at running because of the secondary gain, again, of having people's respect. But I would say that if that's your motivation to have people's respect or if the motivation is for weight management, I just don't see people sustaining that activity for a long period of time. I mean, it's kind of self-harming and to some degree. I mean, that might be a strong way of saying it. I'm gl- yeah. yeah. I'm glad that you put it that way because I think that's what I imagine when we think about does movement always have to be pleasurable? That if you have some other goal in mind that really matters to you and you just are like, okay, I have to do this thing sort of mechanically in order Mm -hmm. to strengthen my left leg like you're talking about, that seems valuable. But if you are doing something daily that you hate because you feel like you have to and Mm -hmm. you're spending 45 minutes on a run or 15 minutes on a run, whatever, and you don't like any of it and the thought process, the mentality that's going along with that feels like a constant drudge the whole time. It can tend to lead to a lot of avoidance when somebody's kind of shown up like that for a while of of doing it without any of the pleasure and just trudging through it. Oftentimes people will swing to the opposite side of just like, I don't want anything to do with it. Right. And understandably And, and understandably. So. Yeah. That would make sense. And so I think an unfortunate part of the cultural thing is oftentimes people, if they can't kind of keep up with a routine of going to the gym or running, they will self-blame and be upset with themselves for not having enough willpower. But I just don't think human-wise we are going to be that motivated again if we don't have an element of pleasure. So it's unfortunate then, again, it goes back to a self-blame or a harming oneself as the narrative for why they're avoiding. And it's so sad because it's just – to me, it's – it's a human response. Absolutely. <gasps> to and, not having pleasure. Right. And that goes back to attuned eating. eating. Attunement in general is right. something that allows you to have both discipline and and pleasure. Right. If you're listening to yourself. Yeah. But I do know that kind of having the discipline to, to make myself move sometimes, even if I'm not thinking of it, I always enjoy it. Anyway, I, I've learned that out of a place of attunement. That's actually another nuance that I would say is really important that comes up in our group a lot is what about the part of you don't want to go do it, you discipline yourself to go do it, and then you find the pleasure. And that's what you're you're speaking to of your own experience. And I'd say like that, again, is this part of the experimentation of knowing yourself, of having enough data to say, like, sometimes I am going to, quote unquote, discipline, have a moment where I'm going against maybe... 
my instinct or what I want in the moment because I know what's coming after. And or say you go out and go for a run and you're just not having it. You're like, "Eh, this one's falling flat. I'm not having fun. I'm not liking this that you could stop. Right. Like or you could keep going. Right. Like there. But you have enough data of what all those things could look like to know yourself better. Yep. But within pleasure, I think some people do get pleasure and self-esteem from moving because they feel like it's progress in body shaping or Mm -hmm. progress in weight loss or helps with their body image because they're not feeling like they're just lazy and fat sitting around. Right. And that is such a nuanced, tricky place where you might be getting a ton of pleasure out of it. And that's good on one hand. But why can you also invite yourself to notice the ways that your body is experiencing that movement and start moving toward, no pun intended, attunement in your body rather than sort of a satisfaction about some external gain that's exactly. on its way if, exactly. you keep doing, if you keep doing this. Yep. Oh, yeah. my gosh. It's so nuanced. Yeah. Yes. So yes. body shaping. Yes. Is it ever okay to body shape? <laughs> what is... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So... This is an interesting one, too, because I think exactly to what you were just saying, that there can be sort of that hit of pleasure if one is seeing, quote unquote, the results of that. And that's what they're desiring is a body change. And I would say, again, that begs a bigger, deeper question of what they think the body change is going to give them, what their association is, again, with having a particular body it's not just the concrete body that they're that they're trying to attain. It's what they think comes with that body. And there's truth to that given our cultural ideals and there's more privilege with thin-bodied people. The place that we challenge our clients when they ask that question is going back to what I said earlier about what does exercise actually or movement do to one's body and what happens if you know, you're working with a belief that it will um, manage weight in a certain way or shape you in a certain way. And what happens if that doesn't occur? What do you do with that? Is my motivation to exercise for a particular outcome? I'm doing this in order to change my body in a particular way versus I am going to do this movement and my body may or may not change. If I'm doing it in order for it to be a particular way, that's where I think it gets a little dangerous. That's where the I would say some of those flags would come up because the body might not change in that particular way. And then what are you going to do psychologically with that? What are you going to do behaviorally with that? It's a setup, I think, in, in my mind, and it's a setup for potential disordered behaviors. <laughs> and if you know your body well and your body does change in particular ways with exercise, that could be part of your understanding of your body. I think I feel curious around sort of managing emotions within exercise. I feel like that's a category in and of itself. I know you asked earlier, like, is it okay to use exercise to manage emotions? But through all the categories that we've talked about, feels like there's, you know, therapist speaking, of course, like there's emotion underneath maybe all of it. Yeah. So what would you say about that? Yeah, that one, like this kind of simpler answer is if exercise is the only way that you know to shift an emotional experience, that's a flag. If it's one of multiple tools, it can hold its place. But we find, and actually the research backs this up, that in fact, 
the exercise itself could be the mediator to avoid the guilt or avoid anxiety. And so it's actually perpetuating more negative emotion to be exercising. That can be happening with somebody with an eating disorder. And certainly that's different than the literature that talks about exercising to help depression, which that is also in fact true. But when somebody has more of this kind of eating psychopathology, the opposite can be true where it could be promoting more negative affect because it's basically trying to soothe the disorder essentially to be exercising. And so a really good question really with a lot of these things is what comes up if I don't do the thing that I do? So what happens if I don't exercise when I'm feeling really anxious? And a way to see that you're in a more healthy place is that you'd have some ease about that. You might have just like pure emotion, like you might be disappointed if you can't do something, but that that level of like distress or anxiety would be really low if you had a pretty healthy relationship with exercise. I can't help but think about sort of the the opposite of that, where someone would be more avoidant. Mm-hmm. I've I've gone through periods of time where I'm really compulsive about exercise and have swung really hard the other way and had experiences where I was really avoidant because I, you know, I think because of the pressure yeah. I felt to exercise. I think now I'm more in the middle where I feel avoidant for totally new reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and have found that actually I'm more avoidant than not in my mm-hmm. life and and that my MO would be to typically choose not to do something rather than choose to do it. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about emotion management in some way, for me, I think about movement being a way to choose to feel better mm-hmm. rather than to sort of stay where I'm at, whether mm-hmm. I'm moping around or feeling numb or feeling mm-hmm. whatever. It can actually help a lot and in a way that feels wonderful yes. that I don't normally think of yes. because my tools typically are way more pleasure-seeking in other realms mm-hmm. or kind of comfort-seeking in other realms. Yeah, no, I think that movement can bring us more in touch with emotions in a really, really good way. There's a ve- there's a lot of positive links to exercise and emotion. I'm glad you brought that up because I was speaking more towards the person who is more of the person that is exercising. And the person who's avoidant, I would say, oftentimes they're avoiding because they don't want to feel negative affect of moving, which often is born in perfectionism. I don't want to feel bad at what I'm doing. I don't want to feel like incompetent. And where this gets, uh, again, kind of sad is there is the reality if you've been avoidant of something for a long time, there would be the period of something being novel or your fitness being, you know, you haven't built the fitness around something. So you're not going to be competent at something when you start it right away. If you don't have the self-compassion, it's a vicious cycle of coming into something and then immediately you would feel there is going to be the setup to feel that way because you're not going to feel competency when you haven't been doing something. And so that's one of the main things I hear about avoidance. I also think that people in larger bodies, that can also be a really strong avoidance pattern because of the discomfort that comes up with not being kind of represented in the movement world. So like going to classes and having no one else in a larger body or being out out on the trail and knowing people are having judgments of their body and not wanting to deal with the feelings that would come up with that because that's really painful because there is weight stigma and there are a lot of movement places that again would hold the cultural beliefs around it and so they that doesn't feel safe for people in larger bodies to mm-hmm. to participate in I don't blame I don't blame them I mean it's not 
Right. There's a lot of, yeah, fat phobia. There's also, um, I think, different ways of teaching or leading an exercise class or any sort of movement that is biased toward different sorts of bodies yes. with the assumption that you would want to be able to get to a certain point, even in terms of like where to put a block on your body when you're doing yoga. Mm-hmm. Like if you're in a larger body, that might not be a comfortable suggestion. Right. So some of those considerations could be a big part of it. Totally. I think that for for anyone, there might be sort of a different realm of experience that they might tap into when they are in their body, whether it's the discomfort of being in a larger body and feeling shame about that, or it's the cultural bias that you're you're holding. Racial bias mm-hmm. could be also just tr- very much trauma-informed, too, that yeah. you are not wanting to know what's going on with your body or be connected to it at all, right? because that brings up a lot of uncomfortable emotion and sensation and mm-hmm. memory, perhaps. Yep. So... Yeah, a lot of alternatives to just the perfectionism yep. that would make it uncomfortable yep. to listen to your body, to be attuned to your body, to be interested in even talking about your body as much as I feel totally. like I'm saying that word yes. right now. But from yeah. our standpoint, too, like we if somebody does identify of having more more being on the avoidance side, there might be all these reasons to be uncomfortable and doing it and painful things, but we would still want to support them in making steps to having some more of those experiences or that data to have more choice to knowing oneself and being able to decide how they want to be in their body and how they want to move or not move in their future, right? Yeah. Um, But that can be a harsh world to do that in. So that's where we do it in our therapeutic setting. Right. Right. And I think a special thing about Opal and the fact that these conversations are happening there is that uh, there isn't a kind of moral assumption around movement itself mm-hmm. and no morality attached to health itself. Mm-hmm. We're talking about that. We're talking about movement right now in a way that's way more attuned rather than the prescriptive way of you right. need to move 30 minutes a day in order right. for X, Y, Z to happen for you to be healthy. I don't know if you would say that that's true, that mm-hmm. like that really does help with health. I think it, from my understanding, it could help with quite a lot of things, mm-hmm. but you don't have to do it. And yeah. and I think Julie said this before in an episode because we're looking at a way bigger picture of, of health. So we're not just looking at physical health. We're also thinking about mental health and spiritual health and psychological health and right. the big picture. And within the big picture, that can look different than what, again, our culture is saying about what to do with exercise. And like that number thing is interesting because... and. Like, is there a role for fitness trackers? Is there a role for kind of having numbers or prescriptions involved? And I think the parallel there to the the relationship with food, where there's the stage of mechanical eating, there might be times that there is the benefit of having some of that structure involved, again, in order to learn about oneself to move toward, towards a more attuned place. So it's, again, though, in and of itself, it depend, uh, my answer would be it depends again. Mm-hmm. It's not evil in and of itself. It's not problematic in and of itself. But then what does somebody do when they engage with those numbers and, and where does that kind of lead them? Is it Does it lead them to knowing more about themselves or is it kind of, again, this staying in the world of external, which, again, just I don't think is the the best place to land. Right, right. Before we end, I wanted to introduce one more thing just around 
think what this process would look like for someone that's actively in recovery versus someone that's not. I don't have a full answer to that because everybody's so different Mm -hmm. and it depends. Once again, it depends. (laughs) But I would say that for people in recovery, it can be a really risky place to start engaging these questions in fear that they will become compulsive or they will become 100% avoidant. Like you don't have to feel perfectly in order to try. You don't have to feel great about your body in order to treat your body well. And in fact, I would say that's actually impossible. So if you're waiting for your mind to totally change before you engage and get some data, it's not going to happen. I would say that very definitively. I love that, yeah. (laughs) And and it's a real, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's such a real fear and it actually does lead to a lot of avoidance is the fear of what if I engage this and it goes downhill real quickly. Yeah. Um, And that's where, you know, I would hope that there'd be some support in in going through that process, whether that is in therapy, whether that is with a friend, whether that is, you know, I don't know the different levels of, of having support around doing that, but you can't change your mind and have kind of a pure mind around all of this no. and a free mind without engaging in the activity itself. Yeah. it's It really is impossible. <laughs> it's, it sounds incredibly impossible. Yeah. The other thing I'm so glad, again, just to state this because it is not only can you not kind of change that mindset without doing it, but while you're doing it, and this was my experience and the experience I've shared with a lot of clients, you won't have confidence of knowing your motivation at the beginning until you have more practice. It's very common to be like, oh, am I motivated by body shaping? Maybe. Maybe I'm motivated by this. Maybe. It's hard to trust because you don't have a, you don't have very much knowledge. And so to, I guess just to also place that as like as a sort of thing to look out for to know that that's probably going to happen is you're in this weird in between when you're doing that work of not totally being able to trust what your thoughts are and what your brain's saying. And that is perfectly okay and perfectly normal. Yes, And the more that you get knowledge of yourself, the more that confidence gets built and the more that you really do, you can more confidently say like, this is where I'm coming from. Yes, exactly. And you're able to work through those thoughts rather Mm -hmm. than avoiding them. So if you're sitting there at the gym thinking, oh my God, this is going to make my thighs smaller, you could reframe the thought too and go, okay, yeah, I can understand why that would feel exciting in one version of me. And I'm hopeful about this. I'm hopeful about the movement. Can I actually tune into my body right now and and name some other things that I'm enjoying about mm-hmm. this that have nothing to do with the shape of my thighs? Totally. Is it actually feeling really good that I'm using my thighs in this way right now? And that's where my brain went. Okay, what is it like to be in my body here? And, you know, where's my mind at right now? What do I? What am I thinking about? What is this offering me? To, again, extend beyond. Yes. I'm, I always do the like that it's an add-on. Yeah. Like you're 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 probably can assume if body shaping has been a main motivator that you're going to have the body shaping thoughts and then what can you add in? What can you be intentional about thinking about? What can you explore as you're doing it to understand yourself more and kind of hold those body shaping thoughts kind of loosely and add right. more stuff in. Right. And change mm-hmm. it back to one of your your fundamentals here yeah. of like turning it more into a relationship rather than objectifying yourself through yeah. the experience. 
Thanks so much for listening. We would love to know kind of how you've taken in this conversation. You can feel free to reach out to us on social media. Instagram can be a great place to send any thoughts or questions our way. Facebook as well. You can find us there and Twitter and keep adding to the list at Opal Food and Body. If you want to learn more about the exercise and sport program or Opal more generally, you can go to opalfoodandbody.com and learn quite a bit there about our programming. Thank you so much to Jackstraw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Talk to you next time. Bye.